All right, good morning, everyone. Let's get started. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Written by LCMS Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We left off having concluded chapter 1, and just by way of a very broad review, on page 9, we have the four characteristics of American Christianity, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. And we've talked about how uh, each one of these leads us away from biblical and historic Christianity. We talked then uh, in maybe a less organized format about some other themes, including what happens when you have the law predominate in the preaching, teaching ethos of a church. What results is the pendulum of pride or despair. So we talked about that. And then we talked about the antidote for that being the proper distinction between law and gospel, the proper balance between law and gospel with, of course, the the gospel having the last word. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so just very generally speaking, that's uh, a synopsis, if you will, of chapter 1. Now into chapter 2 on page 38, we shift gears and we start talking about Scripture. And of course, we're going to have uh, some positive things to say about American Christianity's view and treatment of Scripture. We're going to have some critiques to make about American Christianity's view of Scripture. Let's simply begin with the beginning on page 38. I'm spiritual, not religious. This anti-creed of American culture is as close as it gets to a universal doctrine of our age. No doubt you've heard someone say it or you've seen it on a bumper sticker. Everybody apparently wants to be spiritual, but no one wants to be religious. Hmm. Have you seen that invade Christianity as well? Yeah. Have you seen it invade the Lutheran Church? Yeah, sadly I have too. Um, Jesus versus religion. And every so often this gets, and then I found out that this just gets recycled about every 10, 15 years or so, there's this great big movement of Jesus against religion, you know, spirituality against religion, this kind of thing. All right, so Wolf Mueller then asks, what is the difference? To be spiritual, not religious, is to have a God that doesn't talk. All right, that's an interesting take. Wolf Mueller continues, as soon as God opens his mouth, there is religion, doctrine, and assertions. 
And we might point out by way of critique, as Wolf Mueller already hinted to, that I'm spiritual, not religious, is itself, of course, a doctrine, is itself, of course, an assertion, isn't it? So you can't avoid this. Even something, I, I can't remember if uh, Wolf Mueller touch, touches on this point specifically, but it was, it was very famous some years ago, made famous, I think, by Rick Warren and his Saddleback Church nearby to us, uh, Deeds Not Creeds. Which, of course, the irony is that that is a what? Creed. That's a creed. It's simply a creed that denounces all the Christian creeds. <laughs> so, as soon as one tries to speak against dogma, they've just done what? Taught dogma. You cannot escape dogma, you cannot escape doctrine, you cannot escape teaching, you cannot escape assertion. That's really the point. So you're either asserting and dogmatizing what the scriptures teach, or you're asserting and dogmatizing contrary to the scriptures. But there's, there's not this neutral ground or this way in which one can be a-dogmatic or a-religious. Uh, to even make any statement whatsoever, whatsoever is, um, again, as, as Wolf Mueller says, uh, constitutes a religion, doctrine, assertions. So as soon as God opens his mouth, there is a religion. There is, you know, obviously something to be uh, heard and responded to or believed at bare minimum. There's doctrine and assertions. Wolf Mueller continues, as soon as God talks, there is truth. The truth is always distinguished from error. The desire for spirituality without religion is the idolatrous longing of the sinful heart for a God that is mute. Mm. It's an interesting take. I like it. I think it's got a lot of mileage that one can get out of it. Um, I, think, I think that that's true in a sense, of course. I think it's also true in a sense that when someone says they're spiritual, they just mean I'm in tune with the spiritual, the spiritual and I are one. And it's just another way of, you know, what's this, how's the saying go? God made us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. <laughs> Simply to be spiritual is another sense of like, well, God is how I am. And it's just to formulate one's concept of God on the basis of one's own identity and, and desires. Well, that might be the other side of the coin. Wolf Mueller continues, Conveniently for the spiritual but not religious, if God is mute, then God doesn't say anything about what is right or wrong. The mute God of the spiritual but not religious is very supportive, but it never tells me anything I don't know. It never tells me that something I am doing is wrong. It never tells me anything at all. The mute God makes no judgments, has no opinions, and its thoughts about right and wrong always match perfectly the judgments of the spiritual but not religious person. I think that's the point I was getting after. The mute God will never interrupt my plans with its commands. The mute God is nice, and apparently this God is what you find at the end of every quote-unquote spiritual path, no matter what kind of path it is. The mute God's chief concern is my happiness. Yeah, interesting, because this in our culture becomes syncretistic in that a very commonly held belief 
even, I think, sadly, in the church, although I don't know how common it is, truth be told, in the church, that every religion simply constitutes a different path on the way to God. Um, you can even find, I don't know, maybe more than hints of this in the Roman Catholic Catechism. About the only way you're not going to heaven in the Roman Catholic Catechism is if you're a Lutheran. Everyone else stands a pretty good chance. So this whole idea, whether it's, whether it's a hard-line syncretism or a soft, kind of blurred-line syncretism, this idea of every path leads to God, which of course is true. <laughs> every path leads to God. That's not really the question. What is God's judgment upon you going to be? That is the question. And if you come up, you know, and, and you approach God's altar, all paths lead to God, and you come to God and you say, I thought you were Allah, uh, you're going to have a problem. Or I rejected your son Jesus, you're going to have a problem, you see. So the exclusivity of, of Christianity stands out over and against this idea of the generically spiritual that permeates uh, our life here in America. All right, before we move on to page 39, I'll simply pause to see if you have any reflections or anything to add. What part of Isaiah? You know where it says, your ways, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so um, top of 39, the mute God has no commands, but neither does it have any promises. Spirituality without religion tries to free us from the law and its condemnation. But in the end, it only mutes the gospel. The law cannot be silenced, but the gospel can. And spirituality without religion silences the grace and kindness of God in Christ. It is impossible for sheep to hear a shepherd with no voice. And hearkening back to a point that Wolf Mueller touched on in the last chapter, coming right out of the scriptures, unless one is sick, he has no need of a physician. And so that, that's here too, you know, the whole concept of spiritual is, I'm not sick, I'm well. And so then when the gospel comes, you've inoculated yourself against the gospel. I don't need that. I'm good enough on my own. I'm fulfilled, self-fulfilled, autonomous. I don't need help. I certainly don't need a savior. So uh, all of this then really constitutes a, a rejection of Christ, an inoculation against the gospel. All right, he continues, Christians have a God who speaks. This is a fundamental Christian truth. God talks. In doing so, he not only gives us truth, but he also gives us life. God speaks and there is light. This is referring back to Genesis, of course. God speaks and there is light. God speaks and there is life. God speaks and the world is full of living things and the world is good. God speaks and sinners are forgiven. God speaks and the dead are raised. God's speaking is our hope and our life, our confidence and our comfort. Jesus says, my sheep 
hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There is a voice to be heard, a kind and forgiving voice, a voice that creates and recreates. God speaks. Okay, so then let's get one more paragraph and we will uh, see how this ties in with the Bible then. The Bible is this speaking of God. All scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Thus says the Lord is the chief mark of the scriptures, and it is what matters. The Bible alone is the foundation from which all saving truth flows. And I might interject this liturgical point. So, in the divine service, of course you have the service of the word and then the service of the sacrament. So in the divine service you really have these two different services. In the service of the word, at the readings of the scriptures, okay, the pastor, after he, after he reads it, the pastor says, this is the word of the Lord. And everyone says, thanks be to God. Now, what I, want, what I want to probe into a little is, why is that there? Isn't it completely obvious when the pastor begins the reading, he says something to the effect of, um, the, the Old Testament lesson for the seventh Sunday after Holy Trinity is from such and such and, and chapter such and such. Doesn't he already say that? And then he, he reads it, and then he says, this is the word of the Lord. Well, was there some kind of confusion on that point? Like, oh, this is the word of the Lord. Trust me, I didn't fabricate something. No. Oh, this is the word of the Lord. Ooh, I, was, I thought it was from some, uh, from some 19th century novel. No, what's, what's going on there liturgically? Why is there this proclamation at the end, this is the word of the Lord? It is precisely that the, if you will, the two-dimensional scriptures, the words written on the page, have become three-dimensional, and you have just heard the living word of the living God. Right? So when the pastor says, this is the word of the Lord, he's not Captain Obvious restating something that was already known to everyone. He is proclaiming this profound truth. You have not heard the word of man. You have now heard the living voice of the living God. To which the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We, we believe this and we receive this. This is God speaking to us present tense. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The liturgy reminds us of something we've forgotten. And of course, digressing for just a moment, that's why it's never safe to just jettison the liturgy. To just take these things we've done forever and be like, ah, I don't know what this is, pitch it. That's about as wise as opening up the hood of your car and being like, ah, I don't know what this thing does, doesn't look important, and tossing it until you know exactly why it's there, where it came from, what its purpose is, what it's doing. You better not toss it. Because chances are, if you don't understand, it's got something to teach you. Yeah, to be even a little more pointed about it, I've often said, if you think the liturgy is dead, it's not because the liturgy is dead, it's because you are. <laughs> so, the, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Now you can hear that in the divine service and respond gratefully, gladly, and with, with meaning. Thanks be to God. All right. There's my liturgical aside on Wolf Mueller's point. So, dropping down to the last paragraph on page 39. 
American Christianity recognizes Scripture as the Word of God. That's good. But it fails to recognize the power and authority of God's Word. How so? In American Christianity, God's Word teaches and informs, but it does not enliven or forgive. Hmm. Now that strikes at the liturgical point that I was just making, doesn't it? Because very often, I, and I think I, even in our liturgical formulations as Lutherans, this language slipped in, and it's, counter, it's at counter-purposes to the older tradition of the liturgy, but we call those, we call whatever it is we're doing, readings. Okay? Well, true enough, it's a reading, and I'm not really legalistic about, you know, you can't use that language, but it does give a kind of false impression, doesn't it? That we're all hearing a reading, and then what's that reading do? Well, it instructs or informs. That's what all readings do. They instruct or inform. But then you lose that other dimension, that third dimension I was using by way of uh, analogy. You lose that sense of the living voice of the living God speaking present tense in order to enliven and forgive. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So something is happening, something efficacious. That's the fancy theological word we use just to sort of summarize this whole nexus of thought. Is the word efficacious? Is it affecting something? Is it doing something? Um, and so, again, for American Christianity, largely this view of the word has been lost. The word instructs and informs, but it's not actually living, present tense, doing something. You know? So that's what we want to critique, and that's, of course, what we want to recover. So, just to round out that paragraph, final sentence. In this chapter, we will consider what it means to know that God speaks and that his speaking is in his word. All right. Page 40, a word from God. Wolfmuller writes, Inspired, inerrant, infallible. These are the three attributes that American Christianity has for the scriptures, and these attributes were hard Fought. The 20th century was marked in American churches with the quote-unquote battle for the Bible. There's the, uh, excuse me, here's the story. In the late 19th century Germany, a way of studying the scriptures known as higher criticism was born. Just those of you gathered here, can you just give me a little hand or a nod if you've heard higher criticism? You know what that is? Okay, most, most. Wolfmuller continues, higher criticism looked at the scriptures with critical eyes. Instead of using our human reason as a servant of the text, the ministerial use of reason, Reason became master over the text, the magisterial use of reason. Okay, what I want to do first off is expand out here and just treat 
this distinction between ministerial and magisterial in a more broad sense because this is an immensely helpful paradigm of thought in all of theology, not just in how we consider the Word of God, which would be a subset of theology, at least the way I'm framing it here. Uh, In every article of the faith, including our doctrine of the Word, you can see this ministerial or magisterial distinction at work. So, when reason, so God's word says X, and reason somehow says that X doesn't sound like it could be true. X sounds wrong. X sounds impossible. X sounds nonsensical. Then reason comes over and says, let me fix X so that it's not X. Now, you frankly see this in every single heresy, in every single article of the faith, every single place where somebody's got something wrong. It is, generally speaking, a magisterial use of reason or a magisterial use of emotion or a magisterial use of something else within the human being. So, I think, think for example, the doctrine that straight from the scriptures, straight from our Lord himself, that there is a hell and people, even though God desires that men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, people reject that and they end up in hell. That that doesn't sit right with some folks emotionally. And so there um, there is a magisterial use of emotion that says either we're going to ignore those scriptures or we're going to reinterpret them in such a way that it's not actually the case that people go to hell. So there would be a magisterial use of emotions. Now, what would be the ham-fisted way of treating a magisterial use of emotions? Emotions are terrible. Emotions are worthless. Emotions are counterproductive to theology. Get rid of all your emotions. No. We need a place and a role for emotions. So where are we going to put those? Ministerial. Now, what's the distinction? Well, magisterial, like a magistrate, lords itself over the text and dictates to the text, dictates to God's word what's going to be or not be. Okay? A ministerial use is where, where emotion, or in this example, becomes subservient. You know, ministry is, is service. And so um, ministerial use is to become subservient to the word of God. So it says, It says, here's what the Word of God says. I'm going to put away my feelings. In fact, if I have any contrary feelings, I'm going to submit them to God's Word and and realize that it's my my feelings that are out of whack, not the Word of God. And then I'm going to, in in putting my feelings underneath the text, I'm going to redirect them in service of the text. So we might even we might even sympathetically say, like our emotionally, we might say, that's a hard saying. How can we understand that in light of the rest of the scriptures? How can we describe this in a a winsome way? So that might be a a ministerial use of emotion. Now what we've just said about emotion is all the more true with reason. And reason's the big one that gets us in trouble because a, a magisterial use of reason sits over the text and particularly this is the case in sacraments. Okay, Because sacraments by their very nature are God telling us something contrary to what our reason and senses tell us. This, in fact, is, broadly speaking, even evident if we consider marriage as a sacrament. 
that is as a mystery. How so? The two have become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. And yet, what do our reason and senses see? So when I perform a wedding, up comes the groom first. This is our custom here in America. And, and then up comes the bride. I see two people. We go through the wedding ceremony. They both say, I do. I announce the words, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Indeed, the two have become one. And yet, as they turn and walk down the aisle, what do my eyes see? Not one, but two. And so, my eyes, my senses, my reason are contrary to what God tells me is true. Okay? So, what do I do? I believe God. I submit my reason and senses and say, they're not seeing things quite accurately. They're not seeing things as how they truly are. All right. There's a kind of generalized example. Now, if we get more specific to the sacraments proper, that is, those sacraments that confer grace, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Here, um, what does reason say? How can water do such great things? You just got it from the sink. How is that water different than any other water? And then reason asserts itself over and says, baptism must just be symbolic. That's all it could be. Because it's just water. So it's a symbol. It's an, it's an external symbol of an internal thing going on. Right? That is a magisterial use of reason. That's reason lording itself over the text. Never once does the Bible say baptism is a symbol. Never once does, does Scripture use this external, internal distinction in reference to baptism. Okay, so how can water do such great things? Well, certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water does these things. The Word is powerful in and with the water. It does these things along which, with faith, which grasps hold of this Word of God in the water. Okay, so what have we just done? We have taken our magisterial reason, it says it's just water, it can't do anything, and we have made it ministerial. The text says it does all of these wonderful things. I believe what the text says. Now how can I seek to serve the text? Oh, it's not just the water. It's the word of God in and with the water that does these. You see? So reason doesn't get tossed out. Reason becomes a servant of the text. Same, of course, very acutely with the Lord's Supper. What does your reason and senses tell you is there? Just bread. Just wine. But what does the Lord say? Take, eat, this, and he takes the bread. This is my body. Take, drink, he takes the cup. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if my reason is magisterial, I'm going to say, when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant symbolize. When he says, this is my blood, he meant symbolize. But what is, if something is a symbol of something, is it that thing? No, by definition. Otherwise, it would be that thing. So, to say that this bread symbolizes his body is precisely to say that this bread is not his body. So, no sooner does our Lord in his last will and testament say, this is my body, and reason comes along and with a fancy word says, this is not his body. That's exactly what symbol means. Symbol means is not. Okay? That's a magisterial use of reason. 
How do we make a ministerial use of reason? Well, precisely this way. I believe what Jesus says. This is my body, this is my blood. I may not be able to explain how that, uh, that's true, but I know that he says it. I know that that's true. I know that he's God. He can say whatever he wants to say. He can do whatever he wants to do. And who am I to tell him no? Who am I to correct and contradict the maker of the heavens and the earth? Not going to do it. So I believe. And in believing, then I will seek to explain how that can be and the ways in which it's not. It's not, for example, a cannibalistic eating, nor is it a spiritual symbolic eating. It is a true sacramental eating. It happens mysteriously and yet absolutely truly. Okay, so then reason becomes subservient to the text. So this magisterial ministerial thing is of the utmost importance. In fact, I, um, well, I became aware of this quote some years ago, and it's one of my favorite quotes in terms of doing theology. It comes out of Augustine, and I probably quote it about every other class I teach, so pardon me, but hey, maybe you'll uh, memorize it. Crede ut intelligas. Augustine says, believe in order to understand. This is such a profound key to the scriptures because you find a dogma in Christianity or a, a teaching in the scriptures or anything, frankly, going on in the scriptures. And if it, it, of course, our immediate reaction to that is, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's offensive. Well, that's wrong. If we will crucify those magisterial impulses, believe, then we will understand. In receiving God's word and simply taking and believing it at face value, then the Lord grants wisdom and understanding enough to see the truth, understand and know the truth. So believe in order to understand. I love this point. Now, it's not a general point to be taken out into the world with you. It is a point to be taken within the sphere of Orthodox Christianity. Believe first, then understand. Don't seek to understand, and then if it passes muster, then you'll believe. You see how that's got an exact opposite? That puts, that puts reason on the judgment seat. Let me see, God, if you can assert your word in such a way that I agree with it, then I will deign to believe what you have spoken. You can see how that's upside down, isn't it? Instead, as, as children, as servants, we say, the Lord hath spoken. I don't understand it, but I believe it, and I ask him to teach me to understand it, and so he does. All right, pardon me for the digression, but I just couldn't pass up because the magisterial-ministerial distinction is huge. And especially then when applied to the scriptures. So Wolfmuller's point here is that the magisterial use of reason in the 19th century, late 19th century, and then has its way with us in the 20th century, it manifests itself in this idea of higher criticism, sitting over the text. And in fact, doing so to such a degree, I think Wolfmuller will get into this a little, so I won't do it too much, in such a degree that you end up with this thing called the Jesus Seminar, a bunch of worldwide scholars who all get together and decide what it is in the Bible that Jesus actually said and didn't say. Now, the height of this idiotic movement manifests itself when they all come together and they create a color-coded New Testament, or color-coded words of Jesus. So, they take the words in red, and then they do this. Green is the ones that the majority of us think Jesus actually said. Yellow are the ones we're either not certain about or there's not a clear majority. And red are the ones we all think he didn't actually say. 
<laughs> now, not only do we have individual stupidity and magisterial use of reason, but we have collective democratic stupid, stupidity and magisterial use of reason. It's like, reminds me of one of those anti-motivational posters where everybody's got their hands in it and it says, meetings, because all of us are dumber than one of us. And <laughs> that's the Jesus Seminar. Okay, this, and this is the height, this is the crowning achievement of higher criticism and this method to theology. It ends up in disaster. All right, so um, magisterial use of reason manifests itself in higher criticism. Now, where we left off was in that... Uh, I don't even know how to count the paragraphs on this. I th before the big bracketed words in the middle of the page, if you go up from there, uh, five lines up from there is where we left off in that paragraph. Wolf Mueller writes, The higher critics compared different ancient manuscripts and saw differences in the text. A different word here or a sentence missing there. For the higher critic, these differences confirmed their assumptions. The scriptures are of human origin, or at least the result of a cooperation between God and humanity, and the scriptures contain error. Okay, well, once you open that door, that's kind of the Pandora's box. And it might seem like a tiny little thing that you open up, because you're like, yeah, well, what if it did contain an error? As soon as you do that, you end up really in a position where you can't help but question every single line, every single thing, because what if it, too, is an error? All right. Wolfmuller continues, bracketed, big, bold text, while higher criticism admits that the scriptures contain God's word, it rejects the idea that the scriptures are God's word. Instead, it assumes that the scriptures are of human origin, filled with human motives and agendas. Wow. Well, you can see how widespread this is. You can see this operative in liberal Roman Catholicism. You can also see this operative in liberal Lutheranism. In fact, um, the largest Lutheran church body in America, at least I think it is, their numbers have been tanking faster than anyone else in our country. Um, their actual statement on the scriptures, their teaching and doctrine on the scriptures is precisely this. The Bible contains God's word, but it is not God's word. So, quick thought experiment for you. If it contains God's word, but is not God's word, who do you think gets to determine what parts are God's word and what parts aren't God's word? You. You. So is that a magisterial or ministerial use of the text if you are sitting over the text deciding, yeah, I like that, that's God's word. No, that's culturally determined, that's time-bound, that's not God's word. Who's sitting over there judging and making the decision? Yeah, you. So then the human person, the human ego becomes judge over the text, which, press this to its logical conclusion, you are on the throne of God determining what is God's word and what isn't. That's what's really going on there. Okay, yes, sir. 
Wasn't Thomas Jefferson, I don't know, early president, one of these? Uh, I think so. I'm hardly an expert on him. He, wasn't he the guy that snipped out the parts of the Bible he didn't like? And there's a Jeffersonian Bible, I think. Ah, yeah. His, yeah. So anyway, similar. So there's a, yeah, there's a concrete manifestation of all this. Yeah. Yeah. Now this gets expanded out, doesn't it? Basically, anyone who is um, super into the progressive mindset... Um, and buys into the dogmas of progressivism. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, feminism, LGBT, pro-LGBT stuff, like all of this. Uh, women's pastors would be kind of a manifestation. All of this. Okay, how do you get there? How do you get there? Because the scriptures don't say that. The scriptures denounce these kinds of things or fundamental principles in those topics I mentioned. The scriptures are outright against them. So how do you get there? As a, and supposedly retain your Christianity in precisely this way. Those parts that speak against American progressivism aren't actually God's word. They're time-bound. We all know that Paul was a misogynist. He hates women. Um, he's, he's sexist. The scriptures are written from a patriarchal framework. Of course, most rich, most rich, is if you listen to... Uh, mainstream media these days, if they're commenting on this, what do they say is identical with Christianity? White patriarchy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How many books of the scriptures were written by white people? <laughs> so that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Very interesting take. Oh my goodness. Globally also, are white people even a majority of Christians globally today? Nope. So you can see what that rhetoric is designed to do. It's, it's just flatly false. It's a lie, and it's designed to uh, create tensions between races and a, a supposed oppressor and oppressee classes. So we need to be well aware of what's going on there. We need to see that Christians who have adopted these very worldly I mean, frankly, American progressivism as we see it now is a competing religion with Christianity. Those who have embraced that but want to retain their Christianity are doing this very thing. Scripture contains God's word, but it is not identical to God's word. Could you say that again? Instead of changing the vocabulary, why don't they change and give themselves a new thing? Why call yourself a Christian if you're really not a Christian? And why are you calling yourself a Luther if you're not going to believe anything Luther said? Yeah. Call yourself whoever you're following. Yeah, so the deceit involved there ought to really be traced back to the origin of the whole thing. Of course, any contradiction of God's word is going to come from the deceiver, the yeah. liar. Yeah, the one who even from the very beginning in the garden said, did God really say and he continues to do that doesn't he um, every single issue did God really say and so we've we've uh, what we've done here in America is we've worked all these different ways around like being like well maybe God didn't say and this higher critical approach is one now another one that's very prominent within Lutheran circles is in the same way you use um, reason in a magisterial way in order to to reject certain parts of the scripture and say these parts aren't God's word. The sophisticated Lutheran way of getting around all this, 
sophisticated in great big air quotes, by the way, because once you see this, you see right through it all the time, is that the gospel trumps everything. So that any, any moral or ethical teaching in the scriptures, any line in the sand drawn, any structure or order of creation presented is simply first labeled as law and then comes gospel which destroys the law, wipes it all out. So the answer would, you know, is... It does, does Paul teach that, women, that, that the wife should be submissive to the husband? Does Paul um, you know, teach, teach slaves to be obedient to their masters as to Christ? Does Paul do these culturally offensive things? Well, yes, he does. And yes, that's God's word. And yes, it's true. But the gospel wipes all of that out and gives it no substance and no bearing whatsoever. So this is gospel reductionism. And in Lutheran circles, as higher criticism was hitting the broad global Christian world, or at least the Western Christian world, in Lutheran circles, this was tied in with what was originally called law gospel reductionism. And this was our own unique homebrewed way as American Lutherans of doing higher criticism. And that's still alive and around today. You know, if you say anybody that anyone doesn't like, you are a legalist. Yeah. So if you say anything the scriptures say that's contrary to what somebody's thinking or doing, you are suddenly a legalist because you're allowing that to trump the gospel. And of course, then in that system, the gospel just becomes what? Permission. Permit, not forgiveness, but permission. Because what is what is forgiveness that just that doesn't that doesn't actually draw any lines in the sand, but actually erases all lines. That's not actually forgiveness. That's permission. No. Okay. Oh, yes, sir. One follow-up question. You know, you mentioned the red-letter Bible. Uh, I, uh, w what is your comment on uh, people underlining the Bible or highlighting various? Uh, isn't that kind of a version of that, or sh should we be doing that? Uh, mm, yeah, well... So the question is, uh, you know, highlighting the, the scriptures, the text, or underlying, or this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, my problem anecdotally with it is that as I've done it, I find that everything eventually gets... <laughs> my Bible's such a mess. Sometimes I have to ask people what it says because I've got so many lines and circles and scribbles. I frankly don't think there's anything wrong with that as such. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as such. Um, Particularly helpful, I think, in terms of uh, trying to remember like the main theme of a given section. If you so, rather than like this was profoundly meaningful to me today, which is kind of this egotistical sort of, which I think is what you're getting at. That sort of danger is like this is what God said to me. The rest of it, forget it. I think that's what you're after. That would be a bad way of highlighting. Much, but a, a good way of highlighting would be like. Okay, so what's the, what's the one line from Jesus that will jog my memory of what this whole parable or this whole section is about? That's a fantastic practice, and I would highly commend it to you, simply because when you pick up your scriptures then, you, it allows you really quickly to know where you're at and what he's teaching. And sometimes you can even, from like this 40,000-foot view, see themes and patterns in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. You know what I mean? So... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, again, no, everybody can do what they want. There's no thus saith the Lord. But I'm a big proponent of uh, marking your text objectively 
this is, these are the key points. These are things that will help you cognitively tie them together, remember them, write them into your heart, teach them to your family, or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, the, the subjective. This is what the Lord said to me today. I've got a high, yeah, that's, the, ugh, that's not good. That's a magisterial kind of use of the text, isn't it? Well, a follow-up then is the uh, um, titles, I mean, the section titles that are in certain uh, versions of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, are we to consider that? That's really not part of God's word. That was humanity, some human putting in his version of what that theme was at that point, right? Correct, correct. Uh, I think biblical hermeneutics or uh, how one reads the Bible, um, biblical reading 102, that class, uh, should probably should probably reinforce in our minds that, that the editors of any English text have to make editorial decisions, not only in terms of translating words, okay, um, but, that, but that principle extends more broadly into paragraph breaks. Those headings that they sometimes put on, you should really take those with a grain of salt. They're more just helpful kind of visual markers or they trigger something in your mind, you know, but um, not so much for meaning or content that's going to sway your reading of that text. But we want to remember that even even, um, where verses are broken up and verses themselves, these things are all added to the text later. Chapter, verse, how verses are broken up, how paragraphs are broken up, all of these things are added to the text added to the text after the fact. And so that's why I said it's 102. You can go a long way in your Bible without needing any of this, but it is helpful to have that in your mind, that that sort of going beyond 101 to 102, to have those things in your mind as you look at the text, because there are some times where, in fact, it does make a difference. So um, talking about people who just don't, okay, they use the gospel as kind of an excuse, don't use the, you know, the law, you're being legalistic. Right. So what comes to mind, I found it, in John 8, when the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery, mm-hmm. and as an aside, I always wonder where the man was, because it takes two of them, so it's conveniently she just gets brought, that was kind of rotten. Right. Yeah. Okay, but then at the end, Jesus says to her, who condemns you? And she says, no one. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. He doesn't stop there. He says, go now. Uh, and leave your life of sin. Perfect. Perfect illustration. So how do they get around that? Yeah, the difference between forgiveness and permission. Yeah. Yeah. Forgiveness says, I love you too much for you to fall into this again. Don't fall into this again. Go and sin no more. Um, Permission says, hey, I forgive you. So whenever you feel this need again, you know, just go for it and know that my forgiveness will always be there. Sometimes, I think well-meaning preachers and I've probably preached this way too, even you know, much to my shame. But well-meaning preachers will say something like, "You can't outsin God's grace." I mean, what does that do in the in the heart of a sinful human being, except make you say like, "Well, I'm going to try," or "I guess it's no big deal." Then you know that kind of that kind of impulse. Um, yes, we want to be careful with that. We see that Jesus says, "Go and sin no more." After he after he forgives and saves the woman, so. I love it, too. Uh, John, in his first epistle, says something very similar and of great comfort. I write these things to you that you may not sin. 
But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, I mean, beautiful theology. Like the, the whole point of God's law is that we would not sin. And if we do, we have a Savior. Just, I mean, rinse and repeat. That cycle is the Christian life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus' forgiveness, go and sin no more. Do my best not to sin anymore. If, if I sin seven times in a day, I come to him seven times in a day, and he forgives me not only seven times a day, but seven times seventy, and yet at the end of every forgiveness is go and sin no more. And there's this earnest desire within me um, to want to be better, as the small catechism puts it. Yeah. But isn't that... In, in Romans, it says, uh, I gave him over to a debased mind. And in there he's talking about, you know, in, in the first chapter, and two, they won't, re like you say, you, you re repent and wash over and over where these people don't want to do that. Mm. They don't mm. want the, they don't want the, the repenting and washing. They, because I, I look at, you know, what it's happening, you know, like in Canada where they got a, an atheist for a you know, bishop, and I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't make sense to me, mm -hmm. you know. So I'm thinking, you must have a reprobate mind yeah. to, to say, well, I'm a Christian or I'm in a church, but you don't believe in God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, we, and we've let the world skew us on every, every possible way in this paradigm of, of thought. I mean, it's almost, yeah, it's too big for me to get into right now. It'd probably be a whole class in and of itself. But, but you bring up a really good point. Um, a distinction that has been much lost, but the church has used for 2,000 years, is, is a hardened heart and, and mortal sin that no longer acknowledges something as sin and does it anyway. And then, and then of course, it, it's not even content with that sort of acceptance. Then it has to be celebrated. I mean, have we, have we not seen that in our country? Like, like, all you have to do is accept, accept, accept. Okay, fine, we accept it. That is, we tolerate it. Uh, now you have to celebrate it. And now not only do you have to celebrate it, you have to participate in it. You see, there's always this, right? Um, this, is, this is a kind of mortal sin or hardened heart or given over to their delusions, like this kind of thing, right? Um, but we must be very careful to distinguish that from the Christian who says, the evil that I do not want to do, I keep on doing. God have mercy on me. God help me. And the, the sins of, of habit and the sins of, so the sins of weakness is the classic term. You can easily distinguish um, sins of weakness, even, though they're, even if they're repetitive, repetitive, repetitive kinds of things, self-harming kinds of things. You can always make this distinction because you, you ask the person, is that sin? They say, yes. Would, if you had your choice, would you be rid of this? Yes, absolutely. Why do you keep falling so much? I don't know, and I hate it, and I despise it. That is precisely the response of someone who is sinning out of weakness. That is a smoldering wick that the Lord will not snuff out. That is someone who needs absolution and the support of the congregation, the support of the church, not denunciation, not rejection. Um, and not to be cast out. 
as an impenitent sinner. So you can see very, you know, very clearly there the distinction then um, between a hardened sinner, someone engaged in mortal sin, and someone who is not a hardened sinner, even if they're a habitual sinner, but they're sinning out of weakness. Our church fathers everywhere, Lutheran all the way go back, make this, make this distinction. It's essential for us to keep in mind. Yeah, so I, just, to, just to give it maybe this, uh, this final statement, the woman... And Jesus says, go and sin no more. I mean, hypothetically, what if two weeks later the situation repeated? Would the Lord say, well, that's it. You blew it. I told you to not go sin no more. Here you are. No forgiveness for you. Stone away, friends. I, no, that's not what our Lord's going to say. And so you can even see, you can even see in something like that, right? Um, but but the, hardened, the hardened sinners who desire no forgiveness, indeed, who think that their sin is righteousness. Um, to them, the Lord gives no forgiveness because they're not looking for it. They're not asking for it. So all of this, by the way, if you think that this is just sort of like the wit and wisdom of Rhodey, it's not. You can turn to the fifth chief article in your small catechism on uh, confession absolution. You can look at the part that talks about the office of the keys, and you can see precisely how John 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. How that applies. Wherever there is a Christian who desires forgiveness and wants to do better, their sins are forgiven. Wherever there is someone who does not desire that forgiveness, does not desire to do better, their sins are retained. Openly unrepentant sinners. Okay. All right. So this business about the scriptures containing God's word, not being identical identical to God's word, is a Pandora's box in our culture. And you can see all the different manifestations of this and how people delude themselves into thinking they're still faithful to God's word even when they manifestly are not. All right, one more paragraph right under that great big bracket on page 40. Wolf Mueller writes, For the higher critic, the goal of theology has changed. Rather than bringing truths out of the scriptures, the critic is trying to determine which parts of the Bible are true and which are not. All right, some concrete examples of this. Page 41, the second full paragraph on page 41. Wolf Mueller writes, When higher criticism came to the United States, it found friends and foes. The old mainline denominations were very friendly to this teaching. Okay, so uh, UMC, Methodist, ELCA, liberal, quote-unquote, Lutherans. I have a hard time calling them Lutherans. Um, the Episcopal uh, Church, TEC, PCUSA, ABCUSA, Baptist, and then the UCC, United Church of Christ. You can see how many of these have quite diminished. But these are the old mainline denominations. So the old mainline denominations were very friendly to this teaching, to higher criticism. Embracing higher criticism is the mark of the theologically liberal churches across all the different confessions. These denominations continue to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit in culture. Under the sway of higher criticism, the Bible becomes a book of politically correct fables. 
yeah, or even more, more poignantly, poignantly is rejected for being politically incorrect. Okay, on the other hand, many of the churches in America stood opposed to higher criticism. And honestly, this is like, this is one of the few points where I kind of love my brothers and sisters in Christ, um, no matter what their denomination are. If they tow this line, they've got more in common with me often than so-called Lutherans. Because at least, at least we agree what the foundation is, even if we don't agree on, on the various parts of the foundation. At least we agree what the foundation is. So, on the other hand, many of the churches in America stood opposed to higher criticism. They rejected the premise that the scriptures were of human origin. Again, human origin alone is what he means. They rejected the conclusion that the scriptures contained error. They boldly stood against the ideology of the higher critic. The Southern Baptist congregations, Bible churches, and most non-denominational congregations, I don't know if that's true anymore, have joyfully and clearly asserted against the higher critics that the scriptures are inspired, inerrant, and infallible. All right, so we do have many, many allies outside of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod on this point that God's word is God's word. And God be praised. Every time we find a Christian like that who asserts that on that point, we are agreed, and that is a, a foundational point. If you don't have that, you're really dealing in a, an entirely different thought paradigm, aren't you? Because it's just constantly moving target otherwise. All right, so now what Wolfmuller is going to do, and I think we're going to break here maybe just a couple minutes early, because what Luther, oh, what Luther, what Wolfmuller is going to do for us is talk about um, these three words that we've heard repeated now, inspired, inerrant, and infallible, all right? And then over on uh, page 43, so these are the things that, um, you know, we can agree with. Many, many American Christian churches uphold the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the scriptures. And then what we're going to do on 43 is we're going to do a little critique, and the three things he brings up there, um, Right in the middle of the page, American Christianity confesses the truth of the scriptures with tenacity. This is good, but the doctrine of the scriptures stops there. There is more to say about the Bible. Three more attributes to add to the list. And here's, here's going to be where he's critical of almost the entirety of American Christianity. Okay, clarity, that's the first. Sufficiency, that's the second. And Efficacy, that's the third, and the one to which I was referring to earlier, that the Word of God actually is living and three-dimensional and present tense and does something. So we'll get into that critique uh, next week. The Lord be with you.